Good job. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2. But I forgot to tell you something during the welcome. Here's our exit strategy. When we're leaving, I've always kidded people, if you don't come by and see me, you don't get credit for being here. But we're also taking COVID seriously. So I will shake your hand if you want to shake my hand, and we'll hit the hand sanitizer. But if you just want to come by and not offer, you know, just wave or smile, I'll smile and nod too. So whatever you are comfortable with, there are other ways to exit where you don't have to come out the back door and stand in line. So um, just a little housekeeping before we get to 1 Thessalonians. Started this summer preaching through the book of Colossians, and it ended, and the summer wasn't over. So everybody asked, what are you going to preach on next? And um, I thought, well, we, we turn the page, we get to 1 Thessalonians, so that's where we are. And just a little contrast between Colossians and, and 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Colossae was a city that was in decline. Thessalonica, Nike, or now they call it Thessaloniki, uh, is a city that had 200,000 people in it. It was a seaport town. It was a major road that ran through there. And so hundreds of thousands of people lived there. It was a very like Colossae. It was a pagan town. And the big thing Paul is speaking against is unconverted Jews and pagan Gentiles that believed in all these idols. And we're talking about Greece, so if you know anything about Greek idols, that's what they were worshiping. Here's the problem. Paul didn't get to stay there very long. And so after he's left, their false teachers are getting into the ears of the church and, the, and saying this, that Paul really doesn't love you, really doesn't care for you. If he loved you, he'd still be here. And so Paul writes a very tender letter to the church, and we read that in 1 Thessalonians. So let me ask you, how much do you like your church? Well, Paul loved this church. If you merely attend church without investing in the church, so if you're just at Sunday morning, you go, you're going to have a greater tendency to criticize what happens at the church than if you will invest in it and pour your heart into the ministry there. little boy watched his dad when the offering plate was passed. He saw what his dad put in the offering plate. Later that day at lunch, the dad was criticizing church. And the boy said, well, for my money, it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. So how much do you love your church? Paul says, for this reason. Let me just read the first few verses, verses 13 through 16, and we'll eventually get to 17 through 20. But just to get us started, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and following. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they are always filled up to the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So Paul tells you, starting out, verse 13, for this reason. So what reason? He's about to tell you. Some things he's bragging on the church about. He says, we constantly thank God for you. Paul's no longer there physically, but you'll read it here in a minute. He was there in spirit. He was there in heart. They had captured his heart. That's a great picture. Let me talk to you about that a minute. Which one of those represents the church? 
The one on the left or the one on the right? The one on the right. I just want to clarify that. The church is not a brick building with a steeple on top. The church is the people of God. It's the one, it's, it's the ecclesia, the ones that are called out to God. So that, that picture was in there in case he showed it to you and reminded me to talk about it. So first, first thing Paul's telling him is they welcomed the word. He says, we constantly thank God for you. And he's going to tell him what he's thanking God for. But isn't that interesting to get a letter from the Apostle Paul who they weren't seeing physically anymore. He had been there for months, but he had been kind of chased out of town. In fact, they were being persecuted because of Paul being there, so they kind of encouraged him to leave. And so he is constantly thinking about him. He hadn't forgotten about him. His love has not waned for them. If anything, he loved them even more because of what he was hearing from Timothy, the report he had gotten from Timothy. So he thanked God first that you received the word of God. The word means to receive near. It means you heard it, you brought it close to you, you actually listened. It's possible to sit in a worship service and not hear the preacher. Isn't that right? Has your mama ever looked at you and said, are you listening to me? <laughs> well, you're listening to her at least to hear that. But it's kind of like the old Charlie Brown. When the teacher got up to speak, it was just wah, 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 wah. So it's possible to sit under the preaching of the Word of God and not really receive it, not really. The next thing he says is you heard the Word of God. You heard it from us. I've preached before many times, and sometimes you can read faces when you're preaching. This is live. This is not video. So I'm actually looking at you and kind of reading faces, and some folks are kind of, you know, I, I can see you taking notes. You're nodding your head. Others are nodding off. Um, but probably the most powerful encounter I had was a few years ago speaking to a youth group. And a guy was sitting about on the third row, but he was dead center, and he was all I could focus on. His name was David. And God was all over him. I don't know where David stood with God. I don't know if he was a believer or not. But I know he was under conviction that night. And when I gave the invitation, he sat there. He sat under the teaching and preaching of God's word, but I don't think he heard it. And the next word that Paul's going to use is, you accepted it or you welcomed it. I don't think that happened for David. And the sad thing is, a few weeks after that encounter, the next time I saw David was at his funeral. And the thing that saddened me was, I don't know if he was a follower of Christ. I don't know if God used the preaching of the word to convict David to bring him to that. But someone killed him. And the next time I saw him is at his funeral. So don't mistake the hearing of the Word of God. When you sit under the preaching of the Word of God or you read the Word of God, don't just receive it close to you. Don't just bring it so you can hear it. Don't just listen. But he said you not only did that, but you accepted it. You welcomed it. You welcomed it into your mind and into your heart. They were drawn to the Word because everything else they heard taught was cheap rhetoric. There were pl plenty of religion in the city where the Thessalonian church was, plenty of religious people. They had all these Greek gods that they could worship, but they recognized it's empty. What we're hearing Paul and Silas and Timothy preach to us is the living and active word of God. So you accepted it, not as the word of men. That's what they were hearing out in the streets. But you accepted it for what it really is, the word of God. So the very words that Paul and Silas and Timothy were preaching were anointed and inspired from God. In fact, as Paul writes the New Testament, he writes 13 letters in the New Testament, and he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and says the word of God is literally God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. And so they recognize that. They've accepted it. So they've recognized its or origin, 
and they obeyed its teaching. You're going to see that in the next point. One of my trips to Israel, in fact, I think it was the first trip to Israel, an Orthodox Jew came up and was walking beside our group. And he kind of zoned in on one lady, and he gave her some advice. He said, he talked a bunch, but the last thing is, he, before he parted, he said, here's my advice to you as a Christian. Read the Torah, and when you come across the law, obey it. She looked at me and said, Robert, I ain't reading the Torah. Are you reading the Torah? <laughs> I said, it's really okay. It's the first five books of the Bible, so it's okay. What he's telling you to do is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so Paul says, you've accepted the word of God, not as the word of men. You didn't accept it just because you heard me preach it. It wasn't just Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But you knew it was from God, and it was meant for you. So you let it into your ears, you let it into your mind, and you've obviously now accepted it into your heart. And the other thing he says about the Word of God is it performs its work. See, God's promised to bless his Word and promised to bless your Word. So before I get up to preach, my staff prays for me in the office, and one of the things they pray, and I echo the prayer, is let the preaching of the Word of God not be my words. Let it be the very Word of God. God, keep me from saying something that's not of you and anoint the lips of my mouth to speak only what is from you. So what does that mean to us? Well, God speaks. He still speaks. And what he speaks is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as to, as to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Casey, leave that up there a minute. That doesn't apply to your word. It applies to God's word. Now, you can speak God's word so it's coming out of your mouth, but keep in mind, his word is alive. When you pick up the Bible and read it, you're not reading a newspaper from a month ago that's just dead words on a page. You're reading the very word of God that he's promised to bless. So the church of the Thessalonians had received that. They know God speaks. Then we've got to respond to what he says. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to live it. And that's going to be the next point. And his word transforms those who received it. I love Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, judge me this way as a steward of the mysteries of God. Paul didn't see himself as the chef. He was a servant of the mysteries of God. What does that mean? It means he's not cooking the food in the kitchen. He ain't messing with your food. When I go sit down at a restaurant, I don't want my waiter messing with my food, trying to fix it, eat it, spit on it, whatever. And so that's what, when you, re, when you hear the word of God and you recognize that it's from God, you receive it from the chef, which is God, not the preacher. The preacher's simply delivering what he's got from the kitchen from God to give you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So they had welcomed the Word of God. The second thing is they lived the Word of God. The Word had been preached and something happened. They received the Word and their lives were changed. That's a promise from God, from His living and active Word. So He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches in Judea. The word imitator is literally the word mimic. How do little children, we have a granddaughter now, year old, and God's kind of teaching me through watching her, why does she want to walk? Because she's seen us walk. I think she's looking saying, I can't do that yet, but one day that's going to be me. Now, if you hold her hand, she'll walk anywhere you take her. 
But children learn from watching others. What they hear, them they learn to talk by listening to you talk. They're going to speak the language you speak. They're going to do the things they see you do, which is an awesome responsibility to make sure what we're what we're imita- what they're imitating is good. Okay. So children learn by watching and copying. My question is, who have you followed? Has there been somebody in your life, if you think back to when you first came to Christ, was there somebody in your life, and probably several somebodies, that you were able to watch them and think, I'm going to follow in their footsteps. There's a man in our service today. This doesn't happen most times. But there's a man in our service who knew me when I was about 14 years old. Ray, where are you? Ray Thomas. Stand up, Ray, because he'll be the tallest guy in here. Ray, bless you for being here. I look forward to visiting with you afterwards. I got to tell you a couple stories about Ray. Ray. Ray had a real job. He was just a youth volunteer. Any youth workers here that just love the fact that you've got men and women who will actually go on trips with students like me? He went on youth retreats with us. One in particular was a mission trip to Kentucky. And there were three boys, three of us, me and a guy named Tim and a guy named Jeff, and we scared the leader to death. She made sure that we didn't get put in the same room. I actually roomed with Ray. Guess what me, Tim, and Jeff all have in common today? We're all preachers. (laughs) Can you believe that? So if you're working with teenagers right now and you think this is a lost cause, guess what? God may actually use that person to be a preacher of his word or serve in ministry And so Ray can tell you other stories I'd prefer that he not tell you. But he was one of those men who I saw serve in our church ministry that I was able to look at, and God used him and others to mold and shape who a little 14, 15-year-old boy became because he saw the Word of God lived out by people. So, Ray, thank you. So you become imitators. They had learned to imitate Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They'd also learned to imitate the churches in Judea. And you know what? They may never have even seen the churches in Judea. The church of the Thessalonians was in Greece, but they had heard what they were going through, and they were experiencing some of the same things. You become mimics of the churches of God in Judea, but you've also endured some of the same sufferings. Keep in mind, the writer of this epistle, Paul, used to be responsible for some of those same sufferings. When his name was Saul, he persecuted Christians. He got letters from the chief priest to chase new converts out of Jerusalem and bring them back. And on one occasion at least, it says he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Acts chapter 7. Another time is Acts 12. And I've got to read part of this for you because it amazes me. You're going to learn something from this. Acts chapter 12 speaking of the persecution that they were enduring in the first century. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It's not on the screen. Just listen, or you can read along. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So verse 5, Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was made fervently by the church of God. So here's what's taking place. Herod has arrested some of the leading Christians. He's put James, remember James and John, two of the disciples, put him to death. And he thought, well, that went well. That pleased the Jews. 
let's round up some more. So let's get Peter. Puts him in jail, but because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he didn't kill Peter, but he's waiting. And he said, I'm going to bring him out before the people. Guess what do you think is going to happen to Peter when Herod brings him out before the people? If they kill James, they're about to kill Peter. But what's the church doing? They are praying, praying fervently. So late at night, an angel appears to Peter. Peter's not sure if it's real or if it's a vision. He finally comes to his senses and realizes it is. But just to capsulize what takes place, the angel says, get up, put your shoes on, gird yourself, put your robe on, come with me. His chains fall off. He's walking out of prison with this angel. They come to a gate. The gate opens by itself. I'm pretty sure they didn't have those little electronic eyes like they do at Walmart. Well, they didn't even have them at Walmart. Kroger, where the door opens on its own. Well, that's what happens. Peter goes to one of the homes where he knew the people would gather, and they were praying at that moment. If you read the passage of Scripture, they are praying. Peter's outside, so Rhoda, the servant girl, goes out and hears that it's Peter. Doesn't open the gate. Runs back in and says, you're not going to believe it. Peter is here. i got to read what they said. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. Let me ask you something. Why do we pray for things and ask God to do things that he can do? And then when God does it, we say, you're not going to believe it. I've said that before, and God convicts me when I say that because God's able to do what he did here they finally let Peter in. But that's just part of the persecution that's taking place among the church. And so Paul says, in our absence, we understand you were being persecuted when we left. And I think Paul's wondering, is it still going on? We'll get to that in just a minute. But he says, you're suffering at the hands of your own countrymen. So the unconverted Jews and the pagan Gentiles that lived in Thessalonica are persecuting the church. Why? Because they don't like the fact that things are changing. These people who used to worship all these gods or who used to be an unconverted Jew have come to faith in Christ. They finally realize all of those Old Testament passages that pointed to the Messiah, to Yeshua, he's here. He came. He died on a cross. He paid the penalty for my sin. 360 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament perfectly fulfilled in, in Christ, the Messiah. And people don't like it that they're not following their old life. They're following something new. And so they're saying bad things about Paul, and they're persecuting the Christians, even your own countrymen. And Paul said it's just like the Jews who persecuted Jesus and killed him. They persecuted the prophets and killed some of them, and they drove us out. If you go back into Acts and read, Paul was in the town of the Thessalonian church, and they went to a house to take him out, probably to beat him, or at least run him out of town, and he wasn't there. And so he escapes that, and now he's in Corinth writing a letter after hearing from Timothy how the church is doing. But he said they're hindering us. They thought they were serving God to hinder the gospel being proclaimed. Paul, before he became a Christian, thought he was serving God what he was doing, persecuting, hounding, chasing Christians, arresting and bringing them back. Paul would have said, I'm serving God. I'm doing this on God's behalf. Well, the Jews thought the same thing, but he said they're keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. And the result is, and you see this throughout the Old Testament, God sent wrath. God sent discipline. And typically he used the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, to bring them into captivity. And that day is coming again. Not long, about 20 years after this letter is written, 
Jerusalem is going to be overrun by the Romans and destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed, A.D. 70. And guess what? God's promised one day he's coming again. And when Jesus returns, there's going to be a day, a time, a period where God is going to pour out his wrath. Here's the good news that you'll hear in 2 Thessalonians. We're not destined for wrath. But his wrath's coming because God is holy. He's righteous. His ways are perfect. And that's what's coming. Don't say that to scare you. Say it to prepare you. Here's the problem. The Jews knew their Bible. Don't get in a, a Bible debate with a first century Jew or even an Orthodox Jew of today. The they know the Bible. The problem is they're able to read all of those prophecies of Christ and refuse to see that Jesus fulfilled them. They had a template that they had pressed down on the Bible where they couldn't receive Christ. Be careful you don't do the same thing. The Jews knew the Bible. Surveys are conducted that say that the majority of Christians in America value their Bible but know very little of what's in it. Be careful. Last thing. Let me read the last few verses, verses 17 through 20. But we, brethren, he had said, but you, brethren, now he's including himself in this, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and joy. So Paul refuting what the people in the church at Thessalonica were saying. Paul is saying, we love you. We are trying to get back to you. Don't listen to people that said if they loved you, they'd be here. Paul even makes it personal. He says, we've tried. In fact, I, Paul, more than one time. But we were taken away, literally to be separated or torn away. It would be like a child being taken out of a mother's arms. That's how Paul viewed the situation. It was like his own children had been taken away from him. He said, we've been taken away from a, a short while in person, but not in spirit. Paul said, I'm not there physically, but you are constantly on my mind. The word for spirit here is not the normal word for spirit. It's the word cardia, heart. Paul says, I may not be there in person, but I'm there in heart. My heart is breaking over the fact I can't be there with you. In fact, he said, we're all the more eager with great desire. It's like he's running out of adjectives. All the more eager to see your face because I've tried more than once, and yet Satan has hindered us. The word hindered was a military term, meaning to dig a trench or tear up a road so that it became impassable. That's what the enemy was doing to keep Paul from going back to encourage the church of the Thessalonian believers. He's torn the road up. He's prevented me. He's put me in jail at times. He's thwarted every attempt. And I think Paul thought, one day I'll make it back. But apparently he never was able to. And so the church knew from the letter that Paul loved him. In fact, he said, here's what I think about you. Who is our hope? Who's our hope? Our confident expectation. Paul knew who they were and what awaited them. Paul knew Jesus is coming back. He's going to talk about that in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. The, the second coming is mentioned in every chapter of five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. Paul knew one day they're going to see the Savior that they've been worshiping and they've been serving. Who is our hope? Who is our joy? Literally cheer or calm delight. They brought joy to Paul. I think there's times that Paul writes letters from prison and steam's coming out of his ears. The church at Galatia 
the Galatian letter, I think Paul was angry. But this one, I think he had a smile on his face, and he wanted them to know how much he dearly loved them. And then who is our crown of exultation? The Greek word is stephanos. Anybody named Steve? I see one. That's what that word is. Did you know that, Steve? Your, your name means crown. It means at the end of the race, they put a garland or a wreath on you. Anybody watch the Olympics? Okay, for the one person that's watched the Olympics. Have you ever watched the Olympics? Okay. <laughs> what happens at the end of the, the contest, whether it's a boxing match, wrestling match, fencing? They have over 300 events in the Olympics. Diving, the, the dance where they twirl that thing. and Anybody watch that? I did. I watched a little of that yesterday morning, and like one of them messed up, got a knot in it, so she had to go to the backup thingy. I think that's the technical term is thingy. But whoever wins, what do they put on their neck? A medal. Which color do you want? But you know what? If I was in the Olympics, I'd be happy with any color. Just If it's silver or bronze, I don't care. You can make it out of paper mache as long as it's a medal. I don't think I want a paper mache medal. But here's the point. Paul's saying, you are our crown of exaltation. The thing that excites us and motivates us, church of the Thessalonians, it's you. Better than an Olympic medal, better than a wreath or garland that we placed on his head, Paul says you are that for us. In fact, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul knew that what was going to bring glory to God at the second coming was going to be the people of God who were shining a bright light on him. And Paul said, because of your faith, because of you coming to faith in Christ, there's going to be a day where we see Jesus face to face, either preceding in death or to be here at the return of Christ. We're going to see Jesus. And the fact that you, church, have been faithful, you've received the word, you heard the word, you accepted the word, and it has changed the way you live your life. Because of that, there's going to be glory at the return of Christ. So let me close with this thought. If Jesus is coming back, I use the word if because of the point I'm about to make. He is coming back. People have asked during COVID, Robert, do you think the return of Christ is getting close? My standard answer is it's closer than it's ever been. Think about it. It's closer than it's ever been. He's coming back. And so because that's true, three thoughts, and I'll close with this. Number one, make certain of your faith. You know Jesus is coming back, so make sure it's not going to be an oops moment for you. If he comes back, it's a little too late at that point. But if you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, make sure of your own salvation. Second, tell other people. Share the gospel. If you know Jesus is coming back and you really believe that your faith is placed there, you really believe this is the best news, that's what the gospel means is good news. If you really have good news, tell other people. And the third thing is, Encourage and comfort believers. One of the things about being a part of a church, part of the body of Christ, is that we're able to lift each other up in prayer. I got a, a voice text this morning right before I walked out here. A guy said he's going to be preaching this morning. He's a worship leader at his church, but he's preaching this morning. And he said, it would mean a lot to me to know you've prayed for me. And so I prayed for him before I left my office. Encourage, comfort believers. One of the things we comfort them in is to say, no matter how bad it gets here, it's going to be a whole lot better there. This momentary light affliction, our, our life is but a vapor. But when Jesus comes back, we're going to step into the rest of eternity.
Let's pray together. Father.